Amen. Well, I would be remiss this morning if I didn't uh, show all of my allegiances. Uh, Our oldest son, who's graduating in December, goes to a little small school in Indiana called Hanover College. He played baseball there for a little while. Uh, Of course, our mighty Mustangs of Friendswood, I can't forget them. And right now, specifically their tennis team, uh, I'm supporting. And then I'm going to put this in the middle. The University of Texas at Austin. What starts here changes the world. Uh, So you can believe that. Of course, uh, my wife is supporting her home team, the Wofford Terriers uh, today. And uh, our very own Kate Podger Barrick. I seem kind of loud and crazy right now, Uh, but you're getting it. Uh, Our own Kate Podger Barrick is going there as well. I'm excited for that uh, as well. Uh, her family's back there, and uh, go Terriers. <laughs> menacing, menacing. And, and if, if you're here today rooting for one of those other schools like the Land Thieves from Oklahoma, uh, <laughs> or the Aggies, or some other thing that's second best, um, the Lord loves you, and so do I. So I'm grateful for today. Uh, as we sang a few songs uh, about rivalry and the battle and all of that, it's sort of a, a sub-theme for today. We're going to see it uh, in 1 Samuel. If you've got a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn there uh, to 1 Samuel uh, right after Joshua and Judges, Ruth, and that zone there uh, early in the Bible uh, of probably your, your Bible like the 200s uh, pages, somewhere in there. And, and First and Second Samuel really are kind of one book that we've broken into two books. Uh, but it tells uh, the, the religious, uh, the political history of Israel. And, and it's this grand story of, of great, uh, mighty power and moments of, of epic proportion, There's friendship, there's relationship, there's family dynamics at play. Great sanctuaries to the Lord are built uh, in 1st and 2nd Samuel. The city of Jerusalem uh, becomes the city of the ancient world kind of throughout this book. And and so there's all of this greatness, uh, both in positive and not so positive activity, uh, throughout First and Second Samuel, it, it's a parallel to the Book of Judges, and if uh, I know our students have gone through Judges uh, semi recently, but Judges is a book of uh, of a cycle uh, of we're all good and and acting right and loving the Lord, and then we're not, <laughs> and we go this spiral of sin and trouble, and so a judge comes along, and we get our act together, we repent to the Lord, and then we come again. And then it just repeats over and over and over again. Well, 1 Samuel is a parallel to that book. Uh, so Israel is in this constant state of uh, repentance, forgiveness, and sin. And, and so there's this great magnitude to this book. But it begins with a woman who we know, if you've been around church a while, but in the ancient world was a nobody. She was a nobody from nowhere, a a little small town that 
was off the map. 15 miles, uh, and in that time, 15 miles would be a thousand miles for us today. 15 miles from nowhere. And yet she changes the trajectory of an entire nation. A a, a nobody. A a woman who is cursed according to the ancient world. And and so I want us to look at her story today and and think about how God could use us uh, in a mighty, mighty way. And so at the beginning of 1 Samuel, I'm going to paraphrase verses 1 and 2 because it's a genealogy. Um, Elkanah is one of our characters today. That's the husband. Elkanah. And he's married uh, to two women. I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, one of them name, name is Peninnah, and the other one is Hannah. Peninnah can have children and has children, sons and daughters. Hannah is barren. And so we pick up the story in verse 3, where it says this. Now this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests. Not Phinehas and Ferb, people. I knew that some people over here were thinking that. Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. They were not good dudes. We're going to find that out later uh, in our series. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So Samuel's dad, Samuel's not born yet, Samuel's dad, Elkanah, was a direct descendant of Levi, that the house of the priests, right? The tribe of the priests, the priestly tribe of Israel. And here we have his mom, Hannah, who cannot have children at this point in the story. She is barren. And in the ancient world, if you were married to a woman who could not have children, you were allowed to marry another woman who could have children so that you could carry on the blessing of the nation of Israel, right? You will be the father of many nations. The whole goal was to bless nations with people. And how you have people is you get married and you have children. And so it was allowed in that era that you could do that. And so that's why Elkanah is married to Peninnah. There's a problem here, though. There's a problem because these two women, as you might imagine, don't always get along. I couldn't imagine being married to more than one woman, as great as Brandy is, and she said the same thing about me, so don't think I'm saying anything. Like most of us would agree that having more than one spouse is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And and we see part of the reason why. 
Because here we have Hannah who, according to the ancient world, is cursed. God has forsaken her. He's walked away from her. And she struggles, I imagine emotionally and spiritually. I imagine she struggles relationally. There's a wonderful lesson in this first part. And it comes from sort of the unsung hero here, Elkanah. Despite the fact that she was barren, he demonstrated unconditional love for her. He, he, he loved her. And he showed that love for her in, in tangible ways. And, and as you and I think about the people in our world and how we should respond to those around us, particularly the people who are close to us, uh, our love should transcend circumstances. It should transcend the heartache and the struggle and the pain that that family was going through. And, And he did that. His love for her transcended her condition. And so when it came time for them to go on their yearly trek to to worship at Shiloh, to, to do their yearly offering and sacrifice. He showed in a very tangible way how much he loved her. He, he gave Peninnah and, and her kids some to go to the offering, but he gave her a double portion. He, he gave her twice as much. But she's still discouraged because there's a rivalry here. And it's not like UT and A&M's rivalry. It's not like the Astros and, well, I would say the athletics, but (laughs) sorry, Ben. (laughs) Because the athletics need our prayer. (laughs) It's because they're not very good, but they need our prayer. But but it's not like that kind of rivalry. No, can you imagine living with someone and and there's constant strife? Some of you might experience that. You, You might be experiencing that. Where there's strife and frustration and heartache. There's rivalry. And Elkanah does this wonderful thing by demonstrating his love for her. Am I not more to you than ten sons? What a great demonstration of his love for her. But it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is that there's strife and conflict in the family. And and our natural tendency when we're in a rivalry is to clap back, right? To, you know, oh, well, they said this, and so I'm going to say that. Or we're going to one-up one another, and and we're going to keep driving in. That's That's what a rivalry prompts us to do. But is that what she does? No, she doesn't do that. This rivalry in the household drives her, yes, to have some emotional response of not wanting to eat, not wanting to participate, to to have some emotional response by crying. But no, what does she do? Her, Her response to strife is to go and pray. That's her response, is to pray. Not to make fun of Panina's kids, that would have been easy to do, I'm sure. Not, not to post a cryptic message on social media of the ancient world, the tablets. 
No, she goes to pray. Look, look at what she does. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Eli was not paying attention really right here. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor, razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. As she continued praying, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. She was very kind in this moment. (laughs) I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel Grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She goes and prays. Have you ever thought that, that maybe it's God who orchestrates circumstances in your life so that his glory might be displayed? Hannah couldn't see it in the moment, just like we can't see it in the moment. When God orchestrates circumstances so his glory might be displayed. And what Hannah does in this passage, her her expression of faith is really a catalyst for the entire nation. She is doing what the entire nation of Israel should be doing. Expressing faith and dependence on God. Because her situation was less than ideal. And she didn't understand it. It was hurtful. It was a struggle. She was anxious about it. She was weeping. And in this moment, she displays great faith in God. And perhaps as we look at this passage, if you remember, in the New Testament, there's a similar passage that that talks about this same thing, about the the glory of God being displayed. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, a man born blind. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's the, I don't know, I was once blind, but now I see. It's that passage. And, And Jesus says to his disciples, Because they wonder, was this guy a sinner, his parents a sinner? Whose fault is this? Because that's what we like to do. We like to cast blame. Whose fault is it? And Jesus says, no. This was done that the work of God might be displayed. Let's not forget that human tragedy 
that frustration and difficulty in life might just be the thing that God is using to form your faith. It might be the thing that he's using to work his glory in your life. To display for all the world to see how he is moving in your life. And this little lady from nowhere changes the trajectory of the nation of Israel because of this prayer. And so remember that if you're looking for God to move in a mighty way, you've been struggling year after year after year. Oh, by the way, this wasn't the first time they had gone to Shiloh. They'd been to Shiloh a bunch to worship and offer sacrifices, and every time it's like a, a stab to her heart. Every time. And so if there's something that you've been dealing with, you've been struggling with, you've been working through, you've been calling on God, Remember that that the power of God is found not in your position, not in who you are, where you are, how much you know, where you go to church, what position you are in society. No, it's dependent solely on your posture before him. If you and I want to see God move in mighty ways, you want to see his glory revealed in your life and the life of your church family, your own family, the people in your sphere of influence, your friends at school, your co-workers, then take a position of humility, a posture of humility before the Lord that I'm broken and I have nowhere to go. I'm weeping, I'm anxious, I'm vexed, as Hannah says. And she, through that prayer, changes her entire nation because of a prayer of a woman who was broken over her inability to have children. And as she prays that, she's the first person in Scripture to pray, O Lord of hosts, that's in verse 11, the Lord Almighty, the one who gives and takes away. That's the the Lord I'm praying to. That's the God I'm praying to, the one who gives and the one who takes away. And so I'm going to trust you in either moment. When you're giving, I'm going to trust you. When you've taken away, I'm going to trust you. I come to you. Look on my affliction. See me. See me in this moment. And so wherever you are today, you may be a person who thinks that you have no voice. You have no voice in society. You might feel like you have no voice in your family. You may have no voice at school or the workplace or in the public arena at all. Because you don't have position. Know that the Lord of hosts hears you. And even when the people who are religious leaders above you, over you, even when they're not paying attention fully, because that's Eli. Eli is not paying attention. He's kind of dull in this moment. Like he misinterprets Hannah's plea to God. Even the guy who's supposed to be in tune with God missed it. And so if you feel like you have no voice, let me encourage you, remind you that God is listening 
He hears you. He hears you. And so you can go in peace. And once Eli finally realizes that she hadn't had too much wine to drink, maybe the wine of Lebanon like we talked about last week, she hadn't had any of that. He says to go in peace, like he, he wakes up, oh wow, like this lady means business with the Lord. I, I better pay attention. And so go in peace. I'm confident the Lord has heard you. Go in peace. And what does it say she does? She went away and ate. Like that's like we just sort of pass over that. But what has happened Every year, for how many years, we don't know. Every year, what happens? Hannah doesn't eat during this time of worship because she's so troubled. And now, because of prayer, because confidence in the Lord, she's like, oh, I can live life. I can do the things that I'm supposed to do. I can bring nourishment to my body. And she went away, and her face was no longer sad It's amazing how when we have a relationship with the Lord and we connect with him, how he changes our countenance. Changes our countenance. That's why your face should reflect the joy of the Lord. If you're a grumpy bucket, people don't know that you love Jesus. And they should know because you have a relationship with him. Now, Now again, you can see by this passage, we don't always have to be like shiny, happy people. But when you have an encounter with God, your whole body changes, everything about you, and that's what happens here. She's able to go in peace because she's confident that God has heard her. She knows that he's listening to her. And as a result of that, when she goes away, she returns to the house, and and they get up early in the morning, verse 19 says. And they head back to their home in Ramah. It's the shortened version of what it says in verse 1. And husbands and wives do what husbands and wives should do so they can have children. And what do you know? The Lord remembered her, and she conceived, and she had a son. And in due time, she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now Samuel's name means his name is God. That's what Samuel means. His name is God. But she took a little twist on that and said, I know the Lord has heard me. He's heard me and so I'm going to name him after the Lord. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And he may not always answer it the way you want. He may not answer it like that prayer that Hannah got, this miracle that she's now able to have children. May not answer it in a way that puts you in the best position possible. But God answers prayer. Sometimes that answer is no. Sometimes that answer is not yet. Sometimes that answer is trust me. And sometimes that answer is, let me throw the door wide open that you can see in this moment my glory displayed. But take confidence today that God hears your prayers. He's listening. 
not like the CIA. He's listening because he loves you unconditionally. His love transcends your circumstance. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants to hear from you. And he wants to speak to you. And so as we wrap up today, I, I want to share with you just one little bit of trivia and then a challenge via a question. There are three Nazarites in the Bible. Uh, a Nazarite is a person who doesn't ever cut their hair, who doesn't uh, drink, and who stays away from dead things. There are three of those guys in the Bible. Uh, Samson, perhaps, is the most famous of that bunch. Um, he broke his vow terribly. But what did God do? He went out in a blaze, literally, of glory and saved the nation of Israel, defeated all the enemies of Israel in one fell swoop. Now, he died too, but he did it. And then Samuel, our young friend Samuel here, and John the Baptist. Those are the three Nazarites that we see in the Bible. Guess what? All three of those men were born to women who were barren. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That, that three of the men, not named Jesus, who had the most profound impact on the history of the nation of Israel and, oh, by the way, the history of the world, spiritually, were all born of women who were not supposed to have children. Can God do anything to change the course of history, yes, he can. And sometimes he uses a woman from nowhere to make that happen. Sometimes he might use a teenager from Southeast Houston or a middle-aged business person or a retiree, a grandparent. He might use a 12-year-old. He can do anything. And so I want to close today with this question for you. Could your faith your faith, not the faith of your friends, your family, people you know. Could your faith change the trajectory of your family or your community? I believe the answer is yes. But we have to come like Hannah. Praying for our children, praying for our friends, praying for our needs, praying for our family, praying for our church, praying for those in our community that need the gospel desperately. Praying big prayers, desperate prayers. Prayer, prayers that aren't just like, hey, thanks for the food, Jesus. Those are good prayers because a lot of people don't have food today. But could your faith change the trajectory of our community, of your family, our community, our nation, our world? I believe it can. But we, you, have to believe it and trust in the one who can make it happen, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray to him today.